This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Andrew Green, the Chief of the Division of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery and a Professor of Orthopedic Surgery in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery of the Warren Alpert Medical School of Brown University and Director of the Brown University Shoulder and Elbow Fellowship. He is also a partner of University Orthopedics, a private practice in Rhode Island. Dr. Green, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Well, it's great to be here too. Now, I know we've got a lot to talk about. There's so much that's happened in the shoulder and elbow surgery field, but before we dive into my questions, can you tell me a little bit more about yourself and your background? Well, I grew up just outside of New York City, and I went to Princeton as an undergraduate, where I majored in biology, and then I went to Columbia Medical School at the College of Physicians and Surgeons in New York, and after that, I came to Rhode Island, to Brown, to do my internship and orthopedic surgery residency. It was there that I got interested in shoulder and elbow surgery, and then I did a fellowship uh, with Tom Norris and Relton McCarroll, who are in practice in San Francisco, and did a a one-year fellowship in shoulder and elbow surgery. And then after that, I came back to Rhode Island and joined the faculty practice at Brown University uh, to uh, start the division of shoulder and elbow surgery. And that's where I've been since uh, I went into practice in 1993. So I've been here for quite a long time now. Oh, absolutely. Wow. That's such a fascinating career journey. And considering all of your experiences, what have been the biggest advances in shoulder care over the last 30 years or so? I think I've been fortunate to have um, trained early in the late 80s and early 90s and experienced a tremendous uh, growth and development in shoulder and elbow surgery over that time. I want to, you know, when I started, almost all the surgery was open surgery, and now most of the surgeries, except for you know certain types of specialized procedures, uh, a lot of them are arthroscopic surgery, more minimally invasive. Um, as when I was, you know, thinking about this podcast, one of the things I was trying to do was not just think about what were the things that were innovative, but what what led to that innovation. And I think um, a lot of things happened uh, during that time, including. Uh, we developed a better understanding of the anatomy around the shoulder and elbow. Uh, and there's interest in uh, learning more about the biomechanics and figuring out the biomechanics of the shoulder and elbow, and then understanding the pathophysiology of the diseases and the conditions that we treat. And I think that, in, in addition to technological advances, um, have helped to develop or bring along innovation. The other thing that I think has been really important, uh, which people probably don't uh, it's probably so obvious that we don't think about it is that there's been, because of the internet and communication advances over that period of time, there's been an, a really uh, broad international dissemination of information uh, that's allowed a lot of this innovation to develop in certain parts of the world and then spread throughout the world. Um, and so that, you know, things that were developed in Europe, like the reverse total shoulder replacement um, were uh developed there, people learned about it, and then it spread throughout the world. So I think that uh, you know, the ability to share information uh, was really integral in that. Um, the other thing that's you know, come about over the past couple of years is the ability to have virtual meetings. Um, so that's, I think that's changed the way we uh, provide education and experience in orthopedic surgery and probably all of medicine, where it used to be you'd have to go travel somewhere uh, and now you can do a lot of this virtually. Uh, so I think that's had a, that has and will have a big impact on innovation and uh, the spread of innovation throughout orthopedic surgery, and particularly my area, shoulder and elbow. 
Um, if I think about the innovations, I guess there's innovations about in terms of procedures and then innovations uh, in terms of technology and devices. Um, you can think about shoulder surgery uh, in particular as uh, surgery related to soft tissue problems and then bone and joint problems. Um, and then there's some other miscellaneous problems, but um, think about arthroscopy to start out. So uh, the development of the arthroscope and then the development of all the technology related to arthroscopy and the instrumentation and implants has allowed us to uh, go from doing uh, open procedures for many uh, common shoulder problems to doing all arthroscopic procedures. And you know, when I first started to do arthroscopy, we had very few instruments. We really didn't have a lot of suture passers. There were different, weren't a lot of variety of anchors and suture material. And now that's advanced tremendously. And we can do all kinds of complicated procedures now uh, arthroscopically that we just, uh, we, they were much harder to do open and now they're easy to do arthroscopically. Uh, if we look at um, shoulder arthroplasty, uh, we had anatomic arthroplasty, which when I first started um, was, I'd say, pretty rudimentary. We're just, they just started using modular uh, anatomic total shoulders, and even that wasn't that advanced. And now, uh, just with the understanding of the anatomy and the technology and devices, we're now doing most shoulder arthroplasties for anatomic replacements with stemless implants, smaller implants, uh, better materials. Uh, we, the, the reverse shoulder replacement was developed to address the problem of the rotator cuff deficient shoulder. And that went from being a procedure that was really reserved for elderly patients who, are, who weren't very active in the early in the 90s in Europe and then in the early 2000s in the United States to now represent more than half of the shoulder arthroplasties in the US and throughout the world um, with many more indications than when we first started using it. And I think that's been the result of technological advances and innovation in the design, and also the technique, the surgical techniques that have developed over uh, over those years. Um, I can think of some other uh, procedures like the ladder J procedure to address complex anterior shoulder instability. Uh, this is a procedure that uh, was has been done in Europe for a while, and that has now come to the United States. And I think the the advocates and the experts in Europe who are doing this and they're able to communicate with us and show us that this was a new way to treat some of these complex instability problems. Um, this, uh, augmented glenoid components for both anatomic and reverse total shoulder replacements. Uh, this is a concept that uh, grew out of uh, our uh, difficulty in managing patients who had severe glenoid bone problems. Uh, and you know, the technology and the, uh, to develop the instrumentation and the implants has really advanced what we've been able to do. And I, I could probably come up with some more, but why don't I let you speak? Yeah, yeah, Dr. Green, thank you so much for going through all that with us. That's been, you know, really fascinating to think about everything that's happened over the past three decades, you know, and really seeing how some of the big innovations spread globally, you know, it's just really great to, to hear about all of that is from the technology side, the things that, you know, really are making a difference then too, you know, looking at how people communicate and connect and train really and looking at more of the virtual opportunities. So I think that's amazing to hear. And I'm looking at and thinking about, you know, what's going to happen in the future. Do you see the pace of innovation continuing? Will it be faster, slower? What really do you think will be the future of shoulder and elbow surgery? 
Well, I think there's still a number of problems that we understand, but we don't know how to manage. Um, and some of it relates to uh, having, we have more experience, but also I think there's been demographic changes in the types of patients that we see. Uh, we have a lot of patients who are older and this presents more uh, issues related to uh, problems such as rotator cuff tearing and rotator cuff problems, uh, advanced arthritic conditions. Um, I think that uh, we still haven't conquered the rotator cuff. Uh, we, we know how to repair it, but we don't know how to make it heal better. Uh, we don't know how to prevent de you know, gradual deterioration of the muscle and tendon uh, structures of the rotator cuff, which occurs with aging uh, naturally and also occurs after successful rotator cuff surgery. Um, so I think there are areas that will probably involve uh, under better understanding and application of biologics. Um, where there's been you know, there's a lot of work and a lot of interest in that. Uh, there's a lot of interest in managing uh, shoulder arthroplasty patients who have uh, failed arthroplasties or arthroplasties that have worn out over time. And how do you manage these patients who have more complex problems with revision surgery? Um, another you know aspect of this is um, uh, uh, I, addressing uh, things like infections, uh, periprosthetic infections. Um, they're developing uh, better ways to make the diagnosis, but uh, we need to have better ways to figure out how to treat these patients successfully and, get, and maintain good outcomes. Um, the other technological uh, aspect that is coming into play is uh, the, the involvement of um, virtual reality and preoperative planning. Uh, so how do we uh, uh, perform our shoulder arthroplasty procedures? A lot of us now use computer software to do the procedure virtually and plan ahead of time uh, so that we can anticipate what we're gonna encounter and, and perform the surgery well. Uh, there are uh, patient-specific guides and instrumentation available to uh, make the surgery more accurate. And then there's the implementation of augmented reality so that we can bring some of that planning and into actually into the operating room, whether it's to uh, be able to reproduce the surgery on a kind of a freehand basis or using guides or even navigation for shoulder arthroplasty. I think these are things that are uh, being uh, intensely studied right now, and uh, there are a lot of there's a lot of activity in producing this and developing it. That makes a lot of sense, and it's interesting to hear, you know. Uh, you talk about some of the pre-planning software and some of the other things that um, surgeons are bringing into the operating room, the virtual reality and augmented reality. Um, do you see that becoming more widespread or how do you think access will spread um, based on, you know, what the traditional lines are and knowing the kind of um, connectivity that we have today? So, you know, I go back, how did we do shoulder replacements when I first started? Uh, we had an x-ray never had a CAT scan. We had an understanding of the anatomy based on experience. And some of that was uh, something that I learned from my mentors. Some of it is uh, things that I learned through my own experience in surgery. Uh, but that, uh, I'm not sure, not, that's not something that everybody can do. And it takes time to gain that uh, ability. And we thought we were pretty accurate. The reality was we were probably relatively accurate, but as you got more complicated uh, cases, it's much more difficult to be accurate. 
And I think that uh, my experience with preoperative planning and the software is um, it kind of takes you to the next level of understanding of the anatomy that you're dealing with in the surgery. And you're, when you're in surgery, you can only see what you can see. But if you've gone through the preoperative planning, you have a better understanding of the three-dimensional anatomy of the patient's body. Um, then when you're looking at what you can see in surgery, you have a better sense of what you're actually doing. And I think uh, what it's done for me is to show me that uh, I can be more accurate and I can be more consistent. And I think there are ways to do that. I think there are probably people who will uh, say, well, it takes extra time, uh, there's extra cost. But the reality is uh, once you've done it, it really doesn't take that much extra time. And I think you become more efficient at this procedure and that you probably see cost savings by doing a better job. Because uh, we still see complications of uh, what should be relatively routine procedures, and some of that would probably be corrected or eliminated uh, by better uh, software or uh, augmented reality or navigation uh, to improve that. Got it, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much for going through that with us. Now, before we wrap up our conversation, I just want to tap into some of your experience and expertise um, in growing your practice as well as advancing within your career. What advice would you have for aspiring orthopedic surgeon leaders, perhaps those who either want to build a large practice themselves or become a departmental leader over um, you know, a, a whole department with the hospital or health system? What advice would you have for them? I think first go back to your training, and that is uh, you have a certain number of years or finite amount of time where you're actually in a training setting, and that's what, what you're supposed to be doing. And you really should dedicate yourself to learn as much as you can, um, get as much experience in the operating room, read as much as you can, textbooks, uh, so you get in-depth uh, fund of knowledge, uh, journal articles, uh, and if you want to develop an interest in an area, um, you know, hone that interest, uh, maybe get involved in some research to help understand the research process. And then uh, mo almost all the residents now in orthopedic surgery are doing fellowships. And again, that's another opportunity to learn as much as you can. And, you know, don't take that for granted. Uh, the more time you put into it, the more you'll get out of it. Um, and, you know, it's, it's sort of cliche to talk about Malcolm Gladwell and 10,000 hours and uh, all the kind of um, literature that's talked about experience and practice, but that's how you get really good at what you do. You, you do it more and more uh, so that it becomes something that's second nature. And when I, one of the things I try to teach in surgery is uh, you need to understand the anatomy, the technique, all these things, and that's the background. But when you get to be, more, when you've done it more and you become more expert, you no longer have to think about how you do it because you're doing it. And what you're thinking now is what is the higher order thought process and what's my next step? Uh, while I'm doing arthroscopy, we started the diagnostic component. What am I gonna do to think about this rotator cuff repair? Um, uh, once you get into practice, I think it's really important to be diligent, uh, be available, affable, ability, there's the three A's, um, uh, to be willing to see patients, to be willing to say yes when people ask you to do things. Uh, obviously, you have to kind of you know find your life balance within that uh, scope. Um, and I think the way to get busy is to be available. Um, 
I think I, we, what we tell our fellows is when you're looking for a job um, and you never tell them you're not interested in doing that or you don't want to take call, uh, you, you can kind of do what you're asked to do because I think people will uh, reward that. Um, one of the things that's really important uh, you know, uh, is uh, the approach to healthcare has changed over the past couple of decades. Uh, from a uh, regulatory standpoint, financial standpoint, practice uh, uh, arrangements, uh, employment arrangements, but at the at the end of all this is a patient, and we are here to take care of patients, to make patients better, to improve their quality of life, and I think you really have to think about that and always do the right thing for the patient, and not think about your own self-interest, uh, and that you know that those are sacrifices that some of us make. But uh, the, what you will get out of your patient interactions is uh, just the most rewarding thing you can imagine. Um, you know, to go to, a, go to a, an office and see patients and have patients uh, praise you for what you do or what you did, I think, you know, that's, that's real ego boosting. Um, in terms of becoming a leader, um, that means ne- that really it's important to network. Uh, to have a strong mentorship relationship with uh, a couple of people who can help you and guide you. Um, you have to understand that um, to, to become a leader of an orthopedic department, and it's no longer just being a clinician. Uh, there's a lot of uh, ad- administrative and managerial um, aspects that you have to understand to be able to do that. And, and if, you know, if you have to understand in yourself, is that, is that what you want to do? Is that your approach to your life? And I think, uh, again, if you, know, if you have goals and aspirations, you need to work hard to get to them. That's a really great point. Dr. Green, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a really fascinating discussion, and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad we could have this conversation. Uh, and I hope this is helpful for people.